0: Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums rum coming everywhere. So prepare say a prayer send the word send the word to beware we'll be over we're coming over and we won't come back till it's over over there. hello everyone and welcome the history of the great war episode 135. This week, a thank you goes out to Nathan for becoming a supporter of the podcast on Patreon, where he now gets access to special Patreon-only episodes, like the one on Military Doctrine that released uh, roughly 12 hours ago. You can find out more at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. This is our fourth and final episode on how America entered the war in 1917 and what happened for the rest of the year. During this episode, we are going to touch on what the Germans, French, and Austro-Hungarians thought of America's entry into the war, and then we will spend the bulk of this episode discussing what would be coming for Americans on the home front. While we discussed in some detail the effects of the war on the home fronts of Europe, we have not discussed changes that were going to happen in America. While they were different than those in Europe, nobody in America would be starving to death in the streets they would still have some long-lasting ramifications for Americans, even 100 years later. This will be our final episode on the Americans for now, and next week we will turn our focus to the air war in Europe. In Germany, the American entry into the war did not have any immediately negative consequences. Remember that it occurred in early April, and if you remember, that month was the best month of the entire war for the U-boats, which many Germans believed could end the war very soon. However, as spring turned into summer, things began to change. Both the political leadership of Germany and the public at large became disillusioned with the U-boats during the last half of 1917. It became clear that they would not win the war, and this hurt morale on the home front and caused a political shakeup. The most immediate consequence of this took place in the Reichstag, where in early July 1917, the SPD party was joined by the Catholic Center Party and the Progressive Liberals in calls for a peace note to be sent to all participations in the war. These calls came only after Bethmann-Holwig, who many in the Reichstag blamed for the U-boat campaign, was dismissed on July 19th. This would be the first in a year-long series of moves by the German civilian leadership as they sought to assert control over Germany, a task that they would not accomplish until just a few weeks before the war was over. The reaction to American entry was obviously very enthusiastic from their new allies, although for the French, it required a slight massaging of their official war aims. For the French, their objectives had always been pretty clear for most of the war. After the German attacks of 1914, the French needed to push them out of the country. Then they would demand the return of Alsace-Lorraine, and then they would disarm Germany to prevent this from ever happening again. They also had some stretch goals around trying to get all of German territory on the west bank of the Rhine, and then to try and break up Germany into smaller sovereign states, like they had been before 1870. Early in the war, the French were therefore glad that the Americans stayed out of the conflict, as they were concerned that greater American investment in the war would force a reduction of these war goals. With American entry, this concern went from theoretical to very real. Wilson had spent the last several months preaching his peace without victory plan, and the French were absolutely not on board with this method of making peace. Sure, the French wanted peace, but they wanted that peace to include all the spoils of a traditional European conflict, and that meant territory and reparations. This desire would set the stage for how the Americans and French got along in their coalition, especially after the November 11th armistice in 1918. There was a constant concern among the French leaderships that every month that the war continued in 1918, and possibly into 1919, meant more American troops and more American influence. This growth would be concerning, and it was not out of the realm of possibility that if the war had continued, American influence would have continued to the point of primacy, and this was France's greatest fear. While the French were certainly realists and understood how valuable American troops were, they didn't want Wilson to have control over peace terms, and everybody knew that he would be lenient to the losers, and that was just something the French were not on board with. One country we have not discussed at all in relation to American entry is Austria-Hungary. Interestingly enough, these countries were still on pretty good diplomatic terms, even after the American declaration of war in April. Austrian officials had issued official complaints about the United States as a neutral country, manufacturing military goods that were then sent to Europe in 1915, but they never went beyond just registering the complaint, not that they really had any power to do anything. When war was declared on Germany, the United States did not include Austria-Hungary in that declaration, and the reason given was this because the empire was not in open warfare against American citizens like Germany was with the U-boats. This actually brings up something I have completely skipped over until now, pretty much accidentally, which is unfortunate because it's a pretty important detail. When America entered the war, they declared war on Germany, but they did not join in the alliance of Britain, France, and Russia. This set them up as not really an ally of those three countries, but more of an associated power. This may seem like a bit of hair-splitting, but it did make a difference because the United States could do whatever it wanted to do diplomatically. It was not tied by treaty to the other countries. The most obvious way that this manifested was in the fact that the United States did not declare war on Austria-Hungary and still hoped for a separate peace all through 1917. It would only be in December of that year that war was declared between the two countries, and only after all hope had faded for a separate settlement. We now turn our attention to domestic policy within the United States during the war. We touched briefly on this when discussing President Wilson's speeches before war was declared, but I want to continue to focus on his views on dissent from American citizens. Wilson would not only expect, but would pretty much demand, unity from American citizens during the war. This was a challenge because it was a war in Europe, which was thousands of miles away, at a time when many Americans barely traveled at all. Unlike the European countries where the threat from Germany was manifest, any claim that the Germans were a real threat to the United States was, a, was dubious at best, and a lie at worst. This lack of clear and present danger meant that there was a lot of disagreement about how wise it was for America to enter the war at all. Even though Wilson wanted complete unity, it was difficult for him to demand it under these circumstances." The issue was that the United States was and still is a democracy, where if you are just going by the letter of the Constitution, it's difficult to force people to believe anything. And of course, I say that because we are going to spend the next several minutes discussing some of the ways that the government began to tear down some of those freedoms, some of which would not be restored when the war was over. These efforts began in April 1917, right after war was declared, with the creation of the Committee of Public Information, Officially, this committee was mostly just a propaganda institution, something that every country had. Their goal was to convince Americans that intervention in the war was not only the correct path, but the only path. Unofficially, though, the committee would be the coordinator of a nationwide censorship effort that would continue for the entire length of American participation in the war. The goal of this effort was to reduce the amount of criticism of official government policy, especially that criticism that could appear in public forums. To assist in these efforts was possibly the most important piece of legislation passed during the war, the Espionage Act of 1917. This law was immensely powerful and problematic in the context of American history. As an American, I can say with a good amount of confidence that we believe our country to be a free democracy, and it has been that way from the moment it was founded. But when you read the contents of the Espionage Act, it is easy to start doubting this version of history. Here is a lengthy quote from the Act, not, not the whole text, but a big chunk of the relevant sections. While I'm reading this, try and think of all the pieces of it that are up for complete interpretation and that could be used in a very wide range of circumstances. Quote, "...the it conferred upon the government to define dissent as treason, and punish it accordingly, and to single out for destruction any publications of which it did not approve." Whoever, when the United States is at war, shall willfully make or convey false reports or false statements with intent to interfere with the operation or success of the military or naval forces of the United States, or to promote the success of its enemies, or shall willfully make or convey false reports or false statements, or incite insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the military or naval forces of the United States, or shall willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment services of the United States, Or shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or the Constitution of the United States, or the military or naval forces of the United States? Or shall willfully display the flag of any foreign enemy? Or shall willfully urge, incite, or advocate for curtailment of production? Or advocate, teach, defend, or suggest the doing of any of the acts or things in this section enumerated... And whoever shall, by word or act, support or favor the cause of any country with which the United States is at war, or by word or act oppose the cause of the United States therein, shall be punished by a fine of not more than $10,000, or imprisonment for not more than 20 years, or both." Quote. These types of clauses would be ruled unconstitutional in most circumstances, and in fact, the law would be repealed after the war. But in 1917, Wilson and the executive branch had an immense amount of power and pushed it through Congress under the claim that it was necessary for the Americans to win the war. The one piece that Congress removed from the proposed bill would have given the president the power to censor the press. Even though this clause was removed from the final bill, there would still be ways found to accomplish this goal. The key part of that would be male censorship, which would become very real. It's difficult to understate the importance of mail and newspaper delivery in the United States at this point in history. It was one of the very few ways that people over wide distances could communicate with each other, since there was no internet and telephones were far from the ubiquitous status that they are today. One group that would be greatly affected by this mail censorship was the American Socialist Party. With entry into the war, attacks on socialist groups would be seen as more necessary than ever before, especially after what happened in Russia. The American Socialist Party had been founded in 1901, and had only 70,000 members in 1914. However, during the 1916 election cycle, the socialist candidate for president would receive 600,000 votes. In 1917, the entire group did not even try to conceal their total opposition to entering the war. Remember that a good portion of the country agreed with them. The party relied heavily on mailed publications to communicate with its members, and it would be these publications that would be targeted by the government. The first move was to remove the ability of 60 publications, including the one by the Socialist Party, and this was just the start. Almost anything that could get a publication's mailing privileges revoked would be called upon to revoke them. Here are just some examples from A World Remade by G.J. Meyer. Quote, it happened to the public for saying what President Wilson had said in asking for a declaration of war, that costs should be paid more through taxes and less through borrowing. It happened to the Freeman's Journal and Catholic Register for printing a statement of Thomas Jefferson's that Ireland should be independent. The Jeffersonian, published in Georgia by Tom Watson, once nationally famous as a leader of the populist movement, had to go out of business after writing such things as, quote, men conscripted to go to Europe are virtually condemned to death, and everybody knows it, end quote. The Postmaster General was smart enough not to go after any publication with real political influence, so you see a lot of mailings added to the no-mailing list that were quite niche. The largest publication would be the Appeal to Reason, with a circulation of half a million. I want to be clear on this. Very, very few of these publications were advocating anything other than peace, and the questions being asked were about why the country was even at war to begin with. They were not plotting to help the enemy or do anything nefarious, and by denying them access to the mail, these publications and the groups they represented almost ceased to exist. The mail was the only way to reach a widespread base of support in 1917, and the government was deciding to deny that access, sort of deny them the right to speech. so come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. There were also other instances of free speech being infringed upon. In Seattle, two men were arrested for distributing a publication saying, quote, no conscription, no servitude, no slavery, end quote. And this was even before the Selective Service Act and before the Espionage Act as well. So really, there was nothing that the government could charge them with. What they were doing was simply not illegal yet. So instead, they were charged with conspiring to block the carrying out of the declaration of war, and they got two years in prison. On the 4th of July, a New Yorker was thrown in jail for 90 days for passing out copies of the Declaration of Independence, with a page on the front reading, Does your government live up to these principles? In July, Wilson would give a speech saying, quote, Woe be to the man or group of men that seeks to stand in our way in this day of high resolution when every principle we hold dearest is to be vindicated and made secure for the salvation of the nation, end quote. To add to all of the official punishments and official censorship, there was also a good amount of overzealous citizen reporters telling authorities how unpatriotic other citizens were being. Many of these came from the American Protective League, which was a private organization with thousands of members. Many of these were overeager make-believe counterintelligence officers, whose main job was to spy on their fellow citizens and report on their activities. The types of reports that would be filed would be things like some citizens not being patriotic enough, or maybe they liked German music, or maybe they talked about how horrible the war might be, or for one man in Toledo, who apparently went through all of the library book histories, some people read too many German books. There was also more dangerous and more real actions taken by the APL, as they would play a key role in rounding up real dissidents and in breaking strikes around the country. The worst part of all of this was that for all the reports, all of the breaches of personal privacy, there was never a single actual espionage charge that was found to be even kind of valid, and certainly nothing took to court. Instead, it was just a way to cause problems for people who might not seem patriotic enough. Many of these actions were de facto sanctioned by the government since they did nothing to curtail it. Citizens spying on other citizens, reporting them for no proof of wrongdoing, truly a dark chapter in American history. But I think that's enough negativity for the moment, so let's turn our eyes just a bit to some of the economic aspects of the war on the home front. Right from April 6th onwards, there was a lot of pressure from the British and French for the Americans to produce literally everything that all three countries needed to stay in the war. This put tremendous strain on the slightly disorganized American industrial base. To try and make some sense out of this chaos, the War Industries Board was created, with the goal of coordinating all of the manufacturing output of the country. While this would be a great help, the board would also play a role in two other areas. First, they would have the power to set prices, and second, they would help settle labor disputes. This seems like reasonable powers for a committee designed to help manufacturing uh, to have. They needed these things. But what it actually meant was that the board would tell the companies to give in to the union demands whenever there was a strike, at least as long as the demands were not completely insane. So if the unions wanted more money, the War Industries Board made sure that the companies were properly compensated for these increase in wages. Quite simple, really, and worked great for the companies and the workers. Believe it or not, this was actually the more legitimate side of war profiteering. On the other side were cost-plus contracts that were handed out like candy from the government. These basically said that the companies would be given profits of some set percentage over what it cost them to do the work. Obviously, this system was criminally easy to abuse, with many companies finding ways to increase the cost of what they were doing, maybe using more expensive pieces here, maybe more expensive wood over here to burn some trash or something, and other such strategies to help increase their numbers. These types of contracts and the various efforts to game the system meant that the steel industry would be getting 20% return on investment in 1918, and many other industries were around the same. All of this money being funneled into war industries meant that the federal government's budget ballooned to previously unheard of levels. Before the war, the federal budget had been about a billion dollars a year, give or take a bit. However, in 1918, it would be a billion dollars a month, and in 1919, it was forecasted to be two billion every month. This massive increase was quite the boon for American industry. Between 1914 and 1917, the revenue of the iron and steel industries quintupled. This spending also meant that most normal Americans got a lot of experience with inflation. Fortunately for most of these citizens, the war would be over before some of the more serious negative consequences of that inflation were felt, like they were being felt in Europe by this point. We are now going to close out today's episode with something a little bit different, But very much related to the American home front. We are going to be discussing the Women's Land Army. We have talked a lot about men in the last three episodes. Politicians, sailors, soldiers, all men. But of course, the women of the United States were just as much in the war as anybody else. The American version of the Women's Land Army would draw inspiration from the British. In Britain, when the war started, even the most militant suffragettes would make a truce with the government. They essentially agreed to put their calls for voting rights for women on hold for the duration of the war. In return for this concession, they wanted the release of dozens of women prisoners, who had found their way to jail over the previous years. The government agreed and the suffragette groups went on tours, fully backed by the government, preaching loyalty and service for women. The end goal was to once and for all be given the right to vote. But they hoped that through these patriotic efforts, the path to that right would be easier. And also remember that nobody thought the war would be lasting four years. This resulted in thousands of women volunteering for work in factories and agriculture. It is the agricultural volunteers that we are most interested in today, because it was from them that the American women would draw their inspiration. Initially, there was a lot of resistance from British farmers, many of whom thought that putting women to work in the fields was undignified. But over time, these concerns would fade away, and the British women would make valuable contributions to the war efforts in farms all over Britain. The United States also had a farm laborer shortage. It was similar, but less severe than what was happening in Britain. Unlike in Europe, it was not all due to the men going to the front, but instead also because many men were pulled into factory work due to increased demand and wages in those factories. This resulted in the creation of the Women's Committee of the Council of National Defense in April 1917. This was just the largest of the various organizations, committees, and groups set up all over the nation as women started to organize themselves and to put plans into place. The Women's Committee uh, on the Council of National Defense had no real power, and was mostly just an advisory board and coordinator of these smaller groups. In the United States, as in Britain, there was also the ongoing push for women's suffrage. The women's groups had to strike a balance between their calls to win the war and win the vote, because there were several states scheduled to vote on women's suffrage in 1917, so nobody wanted to push too hard for anything related to the war out of fear that it would alienate the important male electorate that they were needing to get on their side to gain the right to vote. Many within the suffrage movement believed that by applying themselves to patriotic work, they would gain favor with the voters, as long as they weren't too pushy. To spread the word and gain acceptance, each state and regional organization tried a variety of tactics. For example, in New York, advertisements were taken out with headlines like, quote, results show that women have made good as farmers, end quote. Some groups went to expositions like the Eastern States Dairy Expo of 1917 to try and convince farmers to use women in their workforce for the next year. This would then lead to the official formation of the Women's Land Army of America in December 1917. This organization was created by women in New York, who in November of that year had won the right to vote. They used their skills and experience that they had learned during the push for the right and they now applied it to these new objectives— when you think about it, these women were some of the best grassroots organizers in the country at this point. They had spent years gaining acceptance for the suffrage movement and now were moving on to the women's land army movement. Their first public statement would say, quote, Prejudices against women as farm laborers were not hold against the desperate sense of need of the farmer and the proved fact of women's efficiency. It is idle to say that women cannot do farm work when it is known that they actually have done it. To continue to grow and keep in the public eye, a concerted effort was made to send letters to newspapers all over the country. This resulted in many letters to the editor being published, and also many news articles written both by and about the land army. While the women who joined the land army came from all backgrounds uh, and all over the country, one area that was very fertile recruiting grounds were colleges. Much like their male peers, women at these institutions found themselves under intense pressure to do something for the war effort, with many going overseas for nursing or working as secretaries in the expanding army, Uh, but for some women this just didn't work out. So they would join the land army. In the 1918 farming season, the women's land army would organize and supervise more than 15,000 volunteers who just wanted to help contribute to the war effort. This is just a fraction of the total number of women who joined in the effort, because it does not account for those who participated through local and state chapters of various organizations, which were only roughly affiliated with the Land Army. While 1918 had been a huge success for the Land Army, with tens of thousands of women all over the country participating, after the war was over, the Land Army suddenly lacked purpose and drive. Many of its leaders went off to lead suffrage movements all over the country, and many more would be a driving force behind prohibition. So, on September 26, 1919, it was officially disbanded, only to be revived 22 years later when another war would require the work of women all over the country. The war could not have been pursued without the support and hard work of women on the home front, work that they did even without the right to vote in many cases. The First World War was of course fought almost entirely by men at the front, but this was a total war, and it required the hard work and dedication of everyone in society, regardless of their gender, if it was to be brought to a successful conclusion.